0: Hello, Christ community, greetings to all of you, to our 15th Street campus and our West campus and our traditions venue, as well as our friends in LaSalle. And those of you who are joining us and watching online or on our app, so glad all of you are joining us. So if you have your Bible or Bible app, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 20. Um, Let me just mention that in two weeks, we will be finishing our verse by verse 12 year long journey uh, through the book of Luke. It really wasn't that long, but it may have felt like it. But no, we've gone verse by verse through this entire book. And there are three passages left that we have not yet covered. One is here in Luke 20, um, which we're looking at today. And then next week we'll be at a, in a passage in Luke 21. And then the final week we will jump to the end of the book where Luke brings all of this to a conclusion. We will be skipping over the crucifixion and resurrection narratives because they're not that important. No, just kidding. Uh, The reason we're skipping over them um, is because we already looked at those verse by verse a year ago when we were um, leading up to Easter. So you may be wondering what's next. We've been to Luke so long. What is next? Uh, What are we going to be focusing on during the summer? I'm super excited about a summer series that's going to start Father's Day weekend and we're going to be diving in to the Psalms and looking at how we can experience God in the midst of the various emotions of life, when we feel discouraged, when we feel stressed, when we feel fearful, when we need perspective. So I cannot wait for what God is going to do in our lives during this series, not just in our services, but in our our day-to-day engagement in these Psalms. We're putting together a practical guide for each one of us to use during the week to help us experience God in each one of the Psalms that we're looking at. So I'm super excited about that. Okay, back to Luke chapter 20. Beginning in verse 20, in this section of Luke, um, a particular topic is brought up, and it's a topic—it's—it's one—a topic that in our culture we're often warned about bringing up in polite conversations, because when you bring it up in polite conversations, they quickly turn to impolite conversations, and that is the topic of politics. I mean, I can't think of a more volatile topic right now than in our in our nation, especially than the issue of politics. I mean, if you want to lose friends or create tension in an office environment or at a family gathering, just mention the name Donald Trump and just kind of watch the sparks fly. I mean, we live in a culture where engaging in political conversations often becomes so divisive and volatile and angry. And here's what what is most troubling to me. Often Christ followers are right in the middle Of this divisiveness and volatility. Is that where God wants his people to be? I mean, how are we to respond and live in such a volatile political environment where where it feels like our only two options are to either shut up or to shout louder than the other person? Well, Jesus shows us how we are to respond. So let's jump into this passage. Just to to set the context, KJ talked about this, preached on this last week, but no surprise, the religious leaders are not at all happy with Jesus. He has just confronted them directly in the temple courts. He's made them look like fools in terms of the way he answers their questions, and he just told a parable where they are the bad guys. They are the murderers. So they are not happy with Jesus. So they get together, and they decide Hey, we, we need a different strategy here, okay? We need a different strategy. So rather than going directly to Jesus and engaging him in dialogue, they opt for a different approach. Luke 20, beginning in verse 20. "'Keeping a close watch on him, "'they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. "'They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said "'so that they might hand him over "'to the power and authority of the governor. "'So the spies questioned him, "'Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, "'and that you do not show partiality, "'but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. "'Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not?' Okay, so the religious leaders are attempting to catch Jesus in saying something that would give them reason to turn him in to the government, the Roman authorities. And that way, they could get rid of Jesus without getting their own hands dirty. So they schemed together, and they came up with the question that they were certain would get him into trouble and trip him up. But instead of them asking the question, because they you know, thought, Jesus would would recognize them and not the other people of course they sent some spies to do their dirty work and these spies pretended to be really sincere and flattering Jesus blah 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 okay but the question that they ask was intentionally fraught with danger for Jesus they asked him whether or not it was right to pay taxes to caesar now the tax that they were referring to was known as the poll tax it was not a tax that tax collectors would Would gather, it rather was a tax that was paid directly to Caesar Tiberius. And as such, it acknowledged and honored him as emperor. So, do you see the danger of this question for Jesus? If he answered no, you don't need to pay taxes to Caesar, then he would be accused of sedition against the Roman government. But if he answered yes, it would call into question his loyalty to Israel because the various Caesars liked to be treated as divine beings. That was just a thing they had, okay? They liked to be tr- treated as divine beings. So you can see why these religious leaders thought for sure they had him. They had Jesus with this question He's going to get into trouble no matter how he responds, he's going to get into trouble. Verse 23. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Now, this answer is absolutely brilliant. And it is very instructive to us. See, Jesus calls for a Roman coin. Someone give me a Roman coin, right? He said. And, and all, all of them used these coins. And so they were very, very popular. So he, he, he gets this coin. And on one side of these coins was an image of Tiberius with the words Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. And then on the back of this coin was an image of his mother, Livia, who was portrayed in this picture. As the goddess of peace So Jesus looks at this coin And he asks whose inscription is on it They reply Caesar's So Jesus says then give to Caesar What belongs to Caesar And give to God what belongs to God Now in this answer He does two very significant things One He affirms that in our finances God is to be honored In fact, he uses even stronger language than that. He uses the language of ownership. You notice that? Give to God what belongs to God. In other words, a portion of our money is his. It belongs to him. Now, this alludes to the way the Bible talks about tithing. Right where where it says that 10% of our income belongs to God. It is his. And to keep any portion of that for ourselves is to actually rob him. Now, I know that sounds like really strong language. It is, but it's not my language. It's the language the Bible uses. That's the the language the Bible uses. So Jesus here is acknowledging that a portion of our income actually belongs to God, and it should be given to him. But then in his answer, he also acknowledges something else that we are to give to Caesar what belongs to him. Now, this is fascinating. Because of what we know about this line of Caesars, they were not nice people. They were not respectable people. In fact, they did immoral, evil things. They oppressed the Jewish people. The Jews hated Caesar and all that he represented, especially this claim to be divine that was so offensive To a Jew, it was a direct affront to their core belief that there is one God who is worthy of worship, period. So what Jesus is doing here in his answer is giving us a very important lesson about politics about how we as God's people should engage, should respond to our government, how we should engage in conversation, how we should respond to our government. So let me just highlight a few things here that Jesus teaches us in this passage about how we should respond to our government. First is respect, respect. And before we jump into his actual words, that, that he uses here. I want us just to notice the tone of Jesus' words. He isn't angry, he isn't defensive, he doesn't use slander or vulgarity or derogatory or, or or inflammatory rhetoric. No, he is calm, he is civil, he is respectful. I mean, compare that to the most recent political conversation that you've had with someone or on Facebook or whatever. What was the tone of that conversation? See, if it's like most of the conversations that I see on Facebook or in social media, political conversations, it probably turned fairly quickly to name calling and angry accusations. But that's not how Jesus interacted on these matters, even though he didn't agree with Caesar's lifestyle or his political positions. Jesus didn't have this need to somehow prove his point by being angry, which makes me wonder. And as I was studying this, just wrestling with this question, why do we get so angry? Why do we get so angry when it comes to political conversations, political issues? And I include myself in this. What is that? I mean, I can easily find myself getting angry at someone who is expressing a perspective with which I personally disagree. What is that anger about? What is that anger about? It it, it may initially, and maybe for a long time, we initially just cast it off as righteous anger, right? It initially feels like righteous anger. But I think often, I think this anger is rooted in something else entirely, and that is fear, It's rooted in fear. We're afraid of what might happen if this person gets their way. We're afraid of losing influence or control. We're afraid of being controlled. We're afraid of being wrong. I mean, so much of our anger as it relates to issues like immigration or taxes or gun control or whatever, no matter what side of the the debate we happen to be on, so much of our anger on these issues is about fear what if this happens? Oh no, what if that happens? It just stirs up this fear. And our our natural response to fear is anger. But Jesus, you know what? Jesus didn't have a fearful bone in his body. He didn't have a fearful bone in his body. He knew who was ultimately in charge. And it wasn't Caesar. It was God. See, I think it was Jesus' resolute trust in God that freed him from this need to prove something um, and, and to elevate the volume of his voice or whatever to make his case. He was freed from that. So if you happen to struggle with political anger, you know, it might be worth taking some time to reflect upon this question before the Lord. Just to ask the Lord this question. What, what, How is fear impacting my response here, and why? why, How is fear driving my response? And what would it look like then to respond like Jesus with a civility that is fearless? Wouldn't that be cool? A fearless civility. (laughs) That's what he demonstrates here. But this respect, respect is our theme in this point, it's not just demonstrated in Jesus' tone, it's also on display in his words. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. See, Jesus is demonstrating respect for Caesar's authority, even though there is no question that Caesar wasn't following God's principles in how he governed. See, here's the deal, folks, this is so important. This is so important. We are to respect those who are in governmental authority no matter who they are, or how much we disagree with their policies, or how immoral or evil we perceive them to be in terms of their lifestyle choices. It doesn't matter who is the ultimate authority in our government, whether it's Donald Trump or Barack Obama or George W. Bush or no, it doesn't matter. No matter who is in office, we as followers of Jesus are commanded in Scripture to speak and to live respectfully of them. Now, in addition to respect, there's another thing Jesus reveals in his answer in terms of how we are to respond to those in governmental authority over us. And that is submission. Submission. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, we are to submit to governmental authority. In the letter of 1 Peter, which was written um, uh, later, it's in the New Testament a letter from the Apostle Peter um, to some believers. The Apostle Peter writes, look at these words here. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor. As the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of the foolish. Now, what is so shocking here about these words is that they were written at a time when Christians were being oppressed and persecuted by Rome. Peter is writing these words. When the emperor at that time was Nero Who was a power hungry Evil jerk he, set, he actually set Rome on fire He himself did right He had people do that And then he blamed the Christians for it And his punishments of Christians Were diabolical He would put wax covered clothing On Christians And then set them on fire To be street lamps That's the kind of guy he was And yet Peter says, submit to governmental authority. Obey the laws, pay your taxes. It has nothing to do with whether or not we agree or we disagree with the person. It has nothing to do with whether or not we like the person. We are commanded to submit to governmental authorities. This honors God. It honors God. And we have some amazing examples of this in Scripture, of godly people who did this. So you have Joseph under Potiphar. Excuse me, not under under Pharaoh. He worked for Potiphar, but he was under Pharaoh's authority, right? We have Nehemiah with King Artaxerxes. We have Daniel with King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and in every case, in every case they were respectful and submissive to their king. Even when it wasn't um, just or it wasn't likable or whatever it didn't matter and god honored that in fact he used each one of them in significant positions of influence because of it now in daniel's case in daniel's case i mean there was one time when the king issued a decree that no one could pray except to him the king and so what did daniel do When he heard about the edict that had just been passed, just been signed or whatever, what did he do? He didn't throw a public hissy fit. He didn't compromise his devotion to God. No, he just kept praying. He just kept praying. He just kept walking with God, and God took care of him. See, in those rare cases where our government mandates worship or forbids prayer, we must obey God and not man. But those are rare circumstances. See, what Jesus is dealing with here, and what all of us have to deal with at one time or another, is a government that we may not agree with or be happy with. And that doesn't give us the right to disobey, to have bumper stickers. He's not my president, you know, and I've seen those under every president, right? But that doesn't matter (laughs) he is we are called whoever it happens to be we are called to submit to governmental authority and it honors god when we do that no matter whether we like the person or not or their policies or not okay there's one other aspect of jesus response that i want us to notice and that is what i refer to as delineation delineation give to caesar what caesar's And give to God what is God's. And notice what Jesus is doing in that statement. He is clearly delineating between God and politics. See, he is not linking God with Caesar. He is acknowledging these two different realms and the need to keep them separate at a fundamental level. But here's what we have a tendency to do. We want to make Jesus a part of whatever political persuasion we are. So Republicans think that Jesus is a Republican, right? Family values and all. And Democrats think that he must be a Democrat, compassion for the poor and all that. You know, it's like that Yanny-Laurel debate, right? Which word do you hear kind of thing right now? Some people hear, you know, only one word, and the other people hear only the other, right? I mean, that's what's happening. See, everyone... Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Green Party, everyone tries to adopt Jesus into their party. But he will have none of that. He will have none of that. See, one, one of the biggest mistakes we as Christians or we as a church can make is to consciously or subconsciously communicate to people that Jesus is aligned with one particular political party because he's not. He's not. He's about one thing. The gospel of the kingdom. He's about the gospel, the cross, the resurrection, the gospel. That's what he's about, and that 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 the cross transcends all polit- political parties and affiliations. See, here's, here's the deal: when we add politics to the gospel, we lose the gospel. When we add politics to the gospel, we lose the gospel. Rather than the gospel being about faith in Christ alone, we have now added to that, which is horrible. It's horrible because it means we are building or we have built man-made walls that actually keep people away from Jesus. Because they think that becoming a Christian means they have to vote a certain way. And they miss the gospel. I say this very carefully, but I mean it. Shame on us. Shame on us if we add anything to the simplicity of the gospel. If we cause anyone to miss Jesus because we have communicated a political add-on to Christianity. Shame on us if we do that. So what should we do politically as Christians? We should vote. We should pray for our leaders. We should pray for wisdom. We should dialogue civilly about issues. We should respect whoever is in authority, but we should never, ever try to align the gospel with our particular political affiliation, whatever that affiliation is. Because here's the ultimate issue, really. This is the ultimate issue, it gets to the heart here. Well, whose image is stamped on our heart as Christ followers? Whose image is stamped on our heart? Just as Tiberius' image was stamped onto Denarius, whose image is stamped on your heart and mine? See, for those of you here who are Christ followers, the image stamped on your heart is Jesus. He is your savior. He is your first love. He is your Lord. He is your life. He is your joy. When that issue is settled, he is stamped here. When that issue is settled, we are are no longer defined by a particular political uh, position or allegiance. Our ultimate allegiance is to Christ, and everything else falls under his authority and his influence. Which means that in our politically charged environment... We, like Jesus, we are freed. We are freed to be respectful, to submit to authority, and to keep our highest allegiance to Christ. We're freed to live that way. Okay, let's continue in this passage, verse 27. So some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said... Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Glad this is over. Okay. Um, Now, now then At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Okay, this is again another trick question. This is a hypothetical question that's intended to get Jesus to take their side on a particular theological issue. And the issue had to do with the resurrection. The Sadducees were a group of religious leaders, like the Pharisees, Pharisees, Sadducees. They were a group like that, but the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> they didn't believe in heaven, which is why they were sad, you see. Ha <laughs> ha, you can remember that. Okay, so, okay, so they described this kind of over-the-top hypothetical situation with a woman being widowed seven times, and they asked Jesus, who will she be married to in heaven? Again, they're trying to, to they're, 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 they're trying to make the idea of an afterlife in heaven sound ridiculous, That's what's behind this question. And so Jesus fearlessly jumps right into this, verse 34. Jesus replied, well, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and then the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage and they can no longer die for they are like the angels they are God's children since they are children of the resurrection see what Jesus is describing here is a very real spiritual experience of eternal life with God in heaven where anyone who receives him becomes a child of God that's how he describes them here and they are resurrected into a new life with him forever and ever. Jesus explains that this relationship is so glorious, it is so wonderful that there will be no need for marriage in heaven. There's no need. All these earthly categories and perspectives, they will all pale in comparison when we get there. But he sees that see these guys didn't get that. They didn't get it. All they can see are the earthly realities around them. And because of that, they see no life beyond the grave. They can only see what's in front of them. They see no life beyond the grave. But life beyond the grave is essential to what Jesus is offering. It's essential. The cross, the resurrection, it's essential, right? So he continues his argument, verse 37. But in the account of the burning bush, this is Jesus talking He's answering them. Even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, dead guys, right? But he's the God of these guys. He is not the God of the dead. But of the living, for to him all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. Good call right there. Good call. They learned their lesson. I mean, he, he is shredding their theology right before their eyes by, by bringing up Moses, their own patriarch. <laughs> this is so funny. I mean, he talks about how Moses himself addressed God. As the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob Those guys had already died But Moses is the God of them They're obviously still alive According to Moses himself So after Jesus said this The Sadducees shut up They knew they had no response But Jesus isn't finished with them Even though they are done asking him questions He has a question for them Now think about what's happening here in this passage last week and this week for the last few days this is holy week the last few days the religious leaders have brought to jesus their most difficult and their most damaging questions and he has handled each one with ease so now all the religious leaders are silent so jesus steps into the silence with his own question. A question that cuts through all the theological arguing and all the political posturing, and it immediately gets to the the core issue from Jesus' perspective. And here's a little lesson on this. This is important. The application here, we can get, before we read the passage, we can get all hung up. We can get all hung up on... Politics, political discussions and theological wonderings about heaven and creation and God's sovereignty And whether or not God could create a stone that's too heavy for him to lift I mean, really, really important questions like that We can get so hung up on all these questions out there We can get so caught up in these questions that we lose sight of the most important question of all Who is Jesus? And what are you going to do with him? Who is Jesus? And what are you going to do with him? Verse 41, then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? See, Jesus is using a passage from the Old Testament, Psalm 110, one one, one that the uh, religious leaders would have been very familiar with. It was a passage where King David speaks of his Messiah being Lord. And Jesus points out that this Messiah is also from David's lineage, to which Jesus asked, how can David call him Lord, and yet he also be a son of David? See, in a a cryptic sort of way, Jesus is highlighting his own position as Messiah and Lord. He, Jesus, he is a son of David, and he is Lord of creation. He will sit at the right hand of God and establish God's rule. See, he's using the Sadducees' religious language to make his own point. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. So what are you going to do with that? Again, folks, this is the most important question. And it is not simply a theological question. It is a question that is at the core of our very humanity, at the core of our identity. Who do you believe Jesus to be? Who do you believe Jesus to be? Is he simply a religious teacher, a prophet? A wise person who lived centuries ago And had some helpful information For how we can live our lives That's one option The problem is That's not who Jesus claimed to be <laughs> We can say all these things about him. That's not who he, he claimed to be He claimed to be Lord He claimed to be Lord And that claim means That he has a claim on all of our lives And every part of our lives he deserves our worship and our trust and our faith and our allegiance and our obedience and our love and our lives he wants us to live with his image imprinted on our hearts so that every aspect of our lives comes under his lordship but he refuses he refuses to force us to choose him He won't force us. In fact, look look, look what he declares at the end of this whole dialogue. Verse 45. While all the people were listening to what he had just said, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. See, Jesus has got to be so exasperated with and frustrated with these religious leaders by now. He has had run-in after run-in after run-in with them over miracles, over politics, over theology and they still refuse to see. They, they refuse to embrace Him as Lord and Messiah, even when all the evidence points in that direction. They refuse to believe. It is sad, it's so sad really. that their, their religion, their religion got in the way of them experiencing the Messiah. They were so focused on their own reputation, building their own identity being respected, being greeted, sitting at places of honor. They were so caught up in building their own identity that they missed the power of letting Jesus stamp on their hearts His identity, His Lordship. And all of us are vulnerable to the same thing. Trying to build our own identity on our political allegiance or our theological perspectives or our religious observances rather than building it upon Christ alone. Christ Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah. That's the ultimate issue. That's the ultimate question Jesus asks of you and me. Not, who did you vote for? Or whether or not you've got answers for all your questions about God and the future and the afterlife and all that. No, 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 no. We can debate theology and politics for hours, days, weeks, months, years, all the while avoiding the one question Jesus asks of us Are you letting me be Lord in your life? Are you letting Jesus be your ultimate allegiance? your true identity your foremost passion that's the question jesus asks of us let's pray so i want us to just to sit in this place here where we've heard the word, we've heard truth from Jesus. And we're processing these things. And I, I believe there's an opportunity here for response. And I want to give just kind of two opportunities for a response. First of all, I believe there may be some of you here, some of you here who have been you've been using questions about God or the Bible you know, or question, all. you know, th- politics, whatever. You've been using those questions as a smokescreen, keeping you from answering the most important question Jesus asks of you. And that is what you believe about him. And I believe there may be some of you right here and right now, you realize all that other smokescreen stuff, you don't want to miss the most important issue of all. And there's an opportunity here for you to enter into a relationship with Jesus. You don't have to have all your questions answered. He invites you in to a personal relationship with him where you can experience his love that is unconditional, his forgiveness, and his power flowing through you as you surrender your life to him. It's an amazing relationship. If you're you're there, if you're sitting here right now and you think, that's what I want, that's what I need, I want to lead you in a prayer where you can open your heart to Jesus in this moment. So just pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy. You are created, you're holy. And I'm not. I've done my own thing. I've gone my own way. I've not followed you. And I realize that that those choices, that rebellion, that sin separates me from you. But I don't want to be separated from you. Even though there's nothing I could do to get to you, no matter how hard I tried, you came to me. You sent your son, Jesus. And Jesus, you lived a perfect life on this earth with brilliant answers to questions and all of that, miracles, all that. And then you died on a cross in my place. You paid the penalty for my rebellion and my sin by giving your life on the cross. Thank you for doing that. And I choose right now to place my faith in you. I bring you my failures and my doubts and my questions and my concerns and all of that fears. I just bring all of that to you and I leave it with you because you're Lord. (laughs) You are Lord. And in exchange for my trust of you, I now receive your forgiveness of all of my sins. I receive your Holy Spirit living in me, changing me from the inside out. So do your thing and may God. So Father, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer, thank you that the angels in heaven are rejoicing. And I pray for these people, they would grow in their relationship with you. They would grow in this relationship. If that's you, if you prayed that prayer, I encourage you to tell someone. Before you you leave the service, just tell someone so they can encourage you. Second response that I want to encourage the rest of us here who have prayed that prayer, we know Jesus. We're walking with Jesus. And I want us just to sit in this question in the midst of our political allegiances and our theological wrestlings, this question, are we allowing Jesus to be Lord? Or are we allowing his image to be stamped on every area of your life, your your, your fears, your finances, your political affiliation, your theological questions, every area of your life? And let's just take a moment in the quiet of our heart and just offer to Jesus ourselves and all of these areas, offer them to his lordship. Our relationships, every part of our lives to him. So I want to encourage us I realize this is a question that A monumental question that's not Answered at one moment in time It is a a question that we Repeatedly ask And let the Lord ask of us And so I want to encourage Us as we engage in the rest of this Service with the songs that have been Chosen that we would continue Just to Let this question be percolating in our hearts. If there are areas, things the Lord brings to mind, we would surrender that. Another area, we'd surrender that. And this coming week, we would just continually be in this place of Jesus. Be Lord. Be Lord of that area and that area. Oh yeah, this area too. Just that that sense of walking with him. In joyful surrender to him. And so I pray for that dynamic, God, in our hearts right now and what you're doing in these next few minutes together as we're worshiping you. And in the weeks to come, Lord, we would continue to be moved by you, offering our lives to you as Lord, which is an act of worship. So thank you, God. Thank you, God. So why don't we stand? Um, if at some point you want to sit down, that's totally cool, but let's begin standing. And let's worship the Lord Jesus. We love you. God, set us free right now to worship you. You are worthy of our praise and our surrender in our lives.